We are in a series um, called Revealed, where we are um, walking through the first three chapters um, of Romans right now. Um, it's part of a, a, a grander plan as we go through the book of Romans this year. And uh, today, uh, in Romans chapter 2, we're going to be looking at, uh, we're going to see the Apostle Paul address um, a particular group, the religious self-proclaimed moral crowd there in Rome, in particular the Jewish people who were there in Rome um, who were moral in their mind, who were religious, but who were, in this particular case, without Christ. And the last two weeks, um, what Paul said in Romans chapter 1 had implications for all of us, but especially he was talking to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. He was in particularly uh, addressing them. And today, he's in particularly addressing the Jewish people of that day. And, and Paul, what he wants is, he, and when he, and he's writing this book here, and in these first few chapters, what he's trying to get across, kind of the big theme of the first three chapters, is Paul wants both Jew and Gentile, religious, irreligious, moral, immoral, he wants all those people, everyone to know that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. That's the big implication. And in the first century... There was really no greater dividing line among people than Jew and Gentile, okay? They didn't get along. And whether you're reading the Gospels or whether you're reading first century and you're reading Acts or you're, you're reading Paul's writings, there was, there was real issue there between Gentiles and between Jewish people. And the Gospel, uh, the Bible tells us that the Gospel um, tears down the wall between Jew and Gentile and unites anyone who believes in Christ into one body, this, this new body called the church. And so the Jewish people, the Gentile people, any, anyone that comes to faith in Christ becomes a part of the church. And it's no longer about being Jew or about being Gentile. It's about being Christian, about being in Christ. Because both Jewish people and Gentile people, that's everybody else on planet Earth that's not Jewish, need the gospel. We all need the gospel. We all need a Savior. Now, in our own day, we have our own great divisions, Okay. Religious people many times have a different worldview than irreligious people in our culture. We may have differing, differing views on what is moral and what is immoral, or what's important in life and what's less important in life. We just have different worldviews. But we all, religious or unreligious, moral or immoral, need a Savior, right? Whether you're spiritual or secular, we all need a Savior, for we're all sinners. And that's what Romans 3, 1 through 3 is stressing to us. And today, Paul, in confronting the religious Jews, shed some light on us in the church as well. He, he wants these people to see that they are as in much of need of salvation as the Gentiles, who they thought of as big, bad, wicked sinners. And Paul's warning to them is a warning that we all need to heed. Any of us who considers ourselves somewhat religious. If you're here this morning, you're somewhat religious. And we all need to understand this morning that church and religion and moralism and rituals, even the ritual of coming to church or being a part of a church or getting baptized and joining the church and giving and serving, none of those things save us. None of those things take our sin away. None of those things are, are, are ultimately what changes our heart and makes us new people in Christ. And so the things that Paul was pressing upon those Jewish people in those days, there's a lot of things for us to learn today too as people who are in the church. So look with me at Romans chapter 2. We're going to walk through all 29 verses. I'm going to read it all, and we're going to kind of pause at moments and talk, and then we've got some implications as we walk through it. So look with me, Romans chapter 2. The first here, we're going to read the first five verses. Paul writes, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. 
For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Right? All right, let's pause there. Right? Put that on your coffee cup. Get the t-shirt printed. Right? Is that, is that anybody life verse this morning? Storing up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment. That's just not one that, you know, we don't sing a lot of praise choruses about that one. Um, we just, you know, I don't see Chris Tomlin get moved um, to write a bridge for that. But that, that's just not, we just don't see that. We don't. These verses are kind of hard verses. We read that and we tend to, if you read that in your personal devotion time, you might tend to speed up a little bit, right? I'm trying to get to Romans 8. Where is that? And see, in Romans 1, Paul's telling the, all of us, but in, in, in particular, he's aimed at the Gentiles here. He's saying, you have no excuse. Remember we read that? You have no excuse before God. God has revealed himself through creation. So in other words, even if you don't have the laws passed down through Moses, you can look at things around you and you have natural law and you can understand that there's a God and there's a right and there's a wrong and you have no excuse before God. No one's going to stand before God and have a case. And now he looks at the religious, moralistic Jews or really anyone who claims to be moral and says, you don't have an excuse either. In other words, all the world is without excuse. And these self-righteous people that he's talking to here thought they were better than the immoral Gentiles that he was addressing in chapter 1, that their lives were different than theirs, that they didn't think maybe some of those sins that were on that list that we talked about last week were in their life, yet they were practicing the very things they judged other people for and condemned other people for. Look at verse 6. He, God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, but the Jew first and also the Greek. Verse 11, for God shows no partiality. Let's pause there. So Paul says, you think because of your position... As, as the Jewish people, these particular people he's talking to, and it wasn't that all Jewish people thought this way, but these particular people, and you're, because of your self-righteousness, you think that you're going to pass judgment, that you're not going to be judged. But God, he says, is going to judge you for your works. And the point is that their works don't measure up. Now, people interpret this text in a couple of different ways. And it's hard to say for sure. There's a couple of main options. First, Paul could be saying here in these verses that if you could really be good enough if you could keep the law perfect, perfectly, if you truly seek to glorify and honor God above all, if you truly pursue the right course in life, surely yeah, you'll get eternal life. But none of you have or will. And he's going to get to that in chapter 3. None of you do perfectly do that. Or he could be, and maybe even more likely, saying, it's only the one who has faith in Jesus, as he gets to that here in a little bit, in the end of chapter 3, who is transformed into the kind of person who desires to pursue God and pursue holiness from a pure heart. 
And a believer's transformed heart will manifest itself in new desires, new actions, a new course in life, right? And, 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 and people will know that their, their life will testify to their changed heart, to their faith. Their faith will show up in their works. Not because they're justified in the sense by their works. They're justified by faith, right? We're saved by grace through faith, Paul says. But it makes itself known. Our faith makes itself known in the way we live our lives. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Speaking there of the Gentiles. And all who have sinned under the law, the Jews, will be judged by the law. Verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who were righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men, by Christ Jesus. So Paul's point here is all are going to be judged justly by God. If you, if you don't have the law, if you were a Gentile and you were born without the promises, you were born without uh, the, the Pentateuch, you were born without the law, he says you're going to perish without the law. If you, if you do have the law, that's the Jews, you're judged by the law. You're failing to keep the law perfectly because no one can keep it perfectly. In other words, it's not the hearers or the possessors of the law he says, who are righteous, it's the doers. And see, these people, they thought it was enough to have it, that it was enough to know it, that it was enough to say it was theirs. And he's pointing at them and he's saying, but you don't do it perfectly. You're not keeping it. You don't think you have need for faith in Christ. You don't have need, you don't think, for salvation, for a Savior, for a crucified Messiah. But you do. Paul says Gentiles, while not having the law, have law. Not the law, but law. What's he talking about there? See, we have a, a conscience. It helps us, he says, understand right from wrong. Now, our conscience can be seared. Our conscience is broken. We don't always sense right and wrong correctly. It's, it's in no way a perfect measure, thanks to the fall. But it's tainted by the fall and therefore imperfect. But we have a general sense of what is moral and what is immoral. Right? There are some things, even our society at large, atheist, believer, would all agree that's an immoral thing. That's wrong. And when we go and do something that the law requires, okay, like loving our neighbor, we show that we have a sense of right and wrong, and God will judge us according to that. That's his point. Verse 17, but, verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. See, the Jews were supposed to be these things he listed. They're supposed to be guides. They're supposed to be lights. They're supposed to be teachers. They had a responsibility as those in covenant with God, as the people of God, uh, to the Gentiles to point them to God and away from idols, to point the nations to the one true God. 
But these people were being hypocritical. And, I, and because of their hypocrisy, because they, they were hypocrites and they proclaimed something that they didn't, they didn't practice and live out, the name of God was blasphemed because of them. In other words, they were mission failures. They were anti-missionaries. Verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised, a Gentile in this context, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised that keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. Now, getting into more verses that you probably don't have printed on a t-shirt at home. Circumcision was a, a key symbol for the Jews. It was a lot more than a medical procedure for a newborn to undergo. It was, it was a key symbol for them. It marked them as the people of God. Paul, however, points out that their problem is they have the symbol, but they don't actually obey the law. They don't have the reality. They don't live like God's people. In fact, he says it's better off to not have circumcision, but to actually keep the law. He says that, that would be better. He says, you've missed the point. It's never been about the outward physical signs. It's, about, it's, it's not about external conformity to looking like you're a part of the people of God. It's about internal transformation. It's about the heart and actually being a part of the people of God. See, self-righteous, religious, moralistic, yet lost people, as he points out here, he says, their praise is not from man but from God. See, they love the praise of man. They like to look good in front of others like they did in Jesus' day. But the truly saved, the tr those who are resting in the gospel, get the approval, the praise of God. Not concerned about the praise of man. Now when you look at these 29 verses here in this text, what we see here are some marks of those who are religious, self-proclaimed moral, moral maybe, moralistic, but lost. And the same characteristics, I believe, that, that mark some of the Jews of that day mark some in the church today. And then we see one big warning from Paul that I want to talk about at the end of this. So I want to give you three marks of the moralistic and religious lost. And then a warning. Okay, The first mark of someone who is moralistic and religious that we can see in this text, but without Christ, is hypocrisy. This text from verse 1 through verse 29, he is calling out hypocrisy among these religious people. These people were not merely religious. See, they, they, were, they were hypocrites. They had an appearance of godliness, as Paul would say to Timothy, but in another place, but they deny its power. They were self-righteous, but not truly righteous. They had a higher opinion of their morals than God did. Jesus confronted the hypocrites in his day. And they were the religious elites who liked to look good in front of others. Who, who wanted people to think they were godly and spiritual and, and all those sorts of things. And they were concerned about the same things the people in the world were concerned with. They were concerned about man's approval and power and position and prestige. Same things the world was. They just pursued it through religion. 
And Jesus confronted those people. Paul confronts them here in Rome. And we've got to confront that in our day. Because there will always be people till Jesus comes back in the church who claim to know God yet don't. Okay? And sometimes it is people who expose that around others through their hypocrisy. In verse 1 of chapter 2, we see that a hypocrite is someone who will judge someone else while doing the same thing. That's what Paul calls them out for in the first verse. They, they point out the sins of others, but they don't deal with their own sin. And many of the Jews Paul was talking to had done that. They had looked at the Gentiles as immoral enemies of God, but they were enemies of God too. They were immoral too in their own way. Down in verses 17 through 24, Paul calls out the Jews who were supposed to have been a witness to the Gentiles, as we mentioned, but instead they turned them further away from God with their hypocrisy. They had no issue with calling out sin in others that they themselves were engaged in. They had actually repelled people from God instead of attracting people to God, which was their mission as the Jewish people that were, had been given the promises by God. See, hypocrisy marks many, today even, who claim to know God, just as these people did, but yet don't. Just as many Jews in the Old Testament in the first century repelled people far from God instead of pointing them to God, many people today come into the church and they are anti-missionaries. They claim to know God, but their lives are marked by hypocrisy. Think of some of the stories that you've heard. We've all heard the stories. We all know someone who's been turned off from the gospel by those who claim to believe it. People who live lifestyles of ongoing, unrepentant immorality, greed, selfishness, slander, and yet claim to know God. And they actually repel people from God. And if people, instead of people looking at them and saying, man, if that's what a Christian is, I want to know more about it. What is the reason, as Peter says, they should ask for the hope that is within you? Instead, they go, if that's what a Christian is, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Hypocrisy. And while the people of God are meant to attract people, right? We're meant to, to encourage people. And by the, the beauty of our lives, cause people to ponder and wonder about the truth claims of the gospel, many people claim to know God and repel people from God. It's like someone, you know, I, I think I, I, when I was thinking about this text this week, I thought about, I thought about how some people misapply something like fragrances, Okay, perfume, cologne, something that's meant to attract, to allure, to make you smell good, right? But some people apply it in such a way that you're like, I don't want to sit within three rows with them, right? I want to be as far away from it. It's like, it's like a repellent, right? It's because they've like over-applied. But this is like the reverse when it comes to the things of God. People under-applied. And they have just enough spiritual nature, just enough Bible in their life, just enough religious activity in their life, just enough knowledge, just enough know-how, just enough lingo to look the part and kind of camouflage themselves. But at the end of the day, it's not real, it's not genuine, and there are things in their lives and in their hearts that begin to come out that, begin to, that actually works as a repellent and causes people to say, if that's what a Christian is, I don't want to be a part of that. You know, the word hypocrite that I've used here originally in the Greek, carried the idea of wearing a mask like an actor on a stage in a, in a costume. When Jesus calls in the, in the New Testament, when he calls many of the Pharisees and religious leaders in that day hypocrites, that's the word he's using. Like you're wearing a mask, like you're pretending to be something that you're not. That's what hypocrisy is. It's, it's the playing of a part, but not being authentic. Not having a, a authenticity before God and before others. And the, the hypocrites, see, will, will judge others, but they will fail to judge themselves. They'll get angry about the sin of others, but not angry at their own sin. They'll clearly see what's wrong in your life, 
but not see what's wrong in their life. They're great at pointing out specks and not dealing with the plank in their own life. And beware when the sins of others upset you more than your sins do upset you. Beware when you see the need for others to repent, but you don't see the need for yourself to repent. Beware when you have time to gossip about the sins of others, but not the time to confess your own sin. Listen, everyone has been a hypocrite at some point. None of us are without sin in this area. Even as believers in Jesus, we can from time to time behave hypocritically. We're not exempt from this. When we refuse to deal with our sin and instead hide it in religious activity, we're, we're cultivating a heart that can be given to hypocrisy. But some people are trapped in full-fledged hypocrisy. They are hypocrites. They, they are hypocrites. That's who they are. It's their identity. It's not a moment or a struggle or a season. It's an ongoing definitive character trait. It's a way they do life within the church. And the scariest thing about it is hypocrites don't usually think they're hypocrites. The people in Jesus' day that he called out for were deeply offended. And they weren't like, yeah, he's figured me out, right? He's speaking my love language. They're like, no, we want to kill this guy. They didn't see themselves as hypocrites. And most hypocrites don't. See, there's a blinding nature to hypocrisy. And Jesus told those in that day, right, that they're like the blind leading the blind. Nobody sets out in life to say, I'm going to grow up to be a hypocrite. Our sin blinds us from our sin. And then it keeps the sins of others highly visible to us. We don't judge ourselves, but we have no trouble judging others. Beware of hypocrisy. We can all act in it. And the religious but lost, the, 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 the self-proclaimed moralistic person but, but lost is marked by hypocrisy. They, they live a hypocritical life many times. Number two, they're marked by presumption. Verse three says, Do you suppose, O oh man... You judge those who practice such things and you do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, these people were always presuming and never repenting. They saw God's kindness as a sign of his approval over their life instead of an invitation to repent of their sin. The Jews that Paul is confronting here thought the fact that God has been kind and patient with Israel over the years meant that God would not judge them. Everything must be okay. They thought being Jewish in ethnicity and knowing and having the law and having circumcision meant that God would not judge them for their transgressions of that law. God's kindness and his patience towards Israel over the centuries was meant to lead them to repentance, he is saying not to excuse their rebellion. They assumed every day was going to be a day of mercy, a day of wrath, and a day of judgment would never come. Now listen, you can be Protestant, Baptist, Catholic, and make the same mistake. You can presume that because you go to church and you know some Bible verses, and that your sin in your eyes is not as bad as your neighbor's sin, that the sin in here is not as bad as the sin out there. You can presume this... You can presume and presume and presume and presume and never actually repent. See, God's kindness and God's patience are meant to lead people to repentance. Uh, when, when God shows us grace and when he shows us mercy, it's meant to lead us to repentance. The fact that you and, and I are alive today and not dead, the fact that we're here 
in this room together, in the local church, assembled, and not in hell. That's not because God approves of any sin that may be in our lives this morning. That's because God is gracious, and God is kind, and God is patient. And He's still at work in our hearts and in our lives. The, the fact that you are in church today, if you're not a true Christian in your heart, that's not because God approves of your condition. That's his kindness because he wants you to hear the gospel and repent. But the self-righteous, moralistic, religious person that's not a true believer, they see God's grace more like a green light than a U-turn. Okay? They go, wow, God's gracious, God's kind, God's good. So therefore, and then they just go headlong into sin. And they turn it into a license to sin. And they don't see a need to repent because, hey, God's a forgiving God. I might as well be a sinning person, right? Whereas the person who's been gripped by God, been gripped by the gospel, God's grace and God's patience and there's kindness in our lives. When we sin, we realize we need to turn around. We need that God loves us and God's gracious to us. And we, we hear him wooing us back, his spirit nudging our heart, working in our heart causing us to hate our sin, causing us to love righteousness, and we turn around and we turn from sin, we confess our sin, and we, we turn back to Christ. But the religious person that's not been transformed by the gospel, grace is green light. We presume, they presume upon the kindness of God. The religious, self-righteous, moralistic, but lost person will see God's grace and kindness and patience as an excuse to continue in their sin. A way to buy time in sin. Not a motivation to repent. Grace is a permission slip. Because they love sin and not God. So we have to beware of presuming if God's kindness leads you to presumption, not repentance, to lead you to be slack in your sin, to rest in it instead of to repent, you need to beware of that mark. Number three, the third mark, is a hard, unchanged heart. In verse five, he says, but because of your hard, hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. Now they have hard, impenitent, unrepentant hearts storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Throughout the passage, you see this emphasis on the heart, actually. We see here he talks about their hard, impenitent hearts. Because religion without the gospel, morality without Jesus, external conformity without internal transformation has a way of hardening the human heart. This has a way of doing that. And when we experience God's kindness and we do not respond in repentance, our hearts naturally tend to get harder towards the things of God. We become increasingly calloused and we cultivate a heart of hypocrisy. Later on, he points out in this passage the Gentiles had the law written on their hearts. What he means by that, they had a sense of right and wrong. They had a conscience. He mentions the conscience. However, we choose what's wrong, not what's right. and We're held accountable to God for that. And then he goes on to talk about circumcision was to be of the heart was to be more than a physical procedure. There was a spiritual nature to it. God is interested in heart change, not mere moral conformity. And, and there was supposed to be a change of heart, not just a physical marker on the body. In fact, in, in verses 12 through 29, chapter 2, Paul is calling them out for having the law, but not doing the law. 
being circumcised on the outside and unchanged on the inside. And they thought being an outward Jew was enough. They thought looking the part, doing the rituals was enough. It wasn't, though. Paul goes as far as to say that being a true Jew in the eyes of God has to do with the heart, not the physical nature. And being a part of God's people isn't about ritual or conformity or ceremony. It's about changed heart. So Paul, in a sense, says, yes, you've been marked on the outside, but you've remained unchanged on the inside. And that shows up in your lack of obedience to God and his word and your hypocrisy and your presumption and your hard heart. Listen, for us, pressing this into our context, baptism and church membership and attendance and spiritual disciplines and serving others and serving the church and serving people in the world mean little if they are not the fruit of a changed heart on the inside. See, if, if our life change, if our life changes, but our heart doesn't change, if our behavior conforms, but our heart isn't transformed, if we become religious and we become outwardly more moral, at least in our minds, but on the inside we remain full of sin and rebellion and pride, then we still have the core problem that all of humanity has, and that is a heart problem, that we have a heart that has been unchanged and left dead in its sin and in need of spiritual life and newness that only comes by God's grace. See, salvation is not about keeping the letter of the law. You can't keep the letter of the law. It's about being transformed by the Spirit. You'll see there in your Bible that it's a capital S, the Holy Spirit. It's about God giving you a new heart that loves God, that loves people, that desires to, to, to hungers for his word and to obey his word and to, to walk in his word. That, that's where real fruit comes from, real fruit in the Christian life, like the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of, of, of wanting to make disciples and the fruit of wanting to serve others. That comes from a heart that's been transformed by God, from people who believe the gospel. But sometimes... From a distance, we can look like we have fruit, but it's not genuine. It's like when I go to Disney World, we go to Animal Kingdom, and we walk in there, and you see that big tree of life. You ever been there and seen that? And I mean, it's like, from a distance, it's like, that is the biggest tree I've ever seen. And you're like, oh, it's not real, right? But man, it's very green, right? It's like, wow. Amazing. Some of the things that you can go to here in our city and see that aren't real, that look real, right? You can go, speaking of Disney World, you can go over to Epcot. And you can go to France, and you can go to Germany, and you can go to London, and you can go to all these different places, right? And, and man, it's like, wow, this looks just like that, and, and all this sort of things. They even take people who are from those places and put them there to make you feel like you've got the experience, and right? So you're over there in Norway, and they sound Norwegian. You go to Germany, and they sound German. But you're not really there. And there's a sense in which... You can have a faux, a fake, an artificial fruit to your life that's, that, that's, that's a shell. And if people get close enough, they'll see it. If you get in God's word long enough, he'll expose it. And instead of actually having fruit in our lives, we have camouflage. And instead of being, coming from a transformed heart, what it is is we're doing just enough to fit in with the spiritual crowd. And that's what many in that day had done. They look kind of like God's people. I mean, they've been circumcised. They had the law, right? They went, they went to the assembly. They did all the things, you know. They, 
Back in the Old Testament, they had been making their sacrifices. I mean, there had been people who were a part of the Jewish nation who didn't really know and love God for centuries. This wasn't some new thing Paul was exposing. Jesus confronted this in his day. And in, and in the church now, we still see that. People who, they've been baptized. They go to church. Uh, they're here. There's enough. Well, is that fruit? And, and, and the thing is, we have to remember, those aren't, that's not really fruit. It kind of looks like fruit. But see, fruit is patience and love and joy and self-control and those sorts of things. The fruit of the Spirit, right? It comes from within and it changes our very nature in the sense that we behave differently and react differently and we handle trials and circumstances differently. And it's not perfect by any means, but we're being transformed from the inside because there's heart change. And so genuine spiritual fruit begins to come forth. Yeah, it's slow, right? It's not perfect. We have seasons where we may bear more fruit than others. It, it, it's a long course over the course of our life. It's the way fruit grows. But it's not artificial. It's not some shell game. It's not just some camouflage to, to make us fit in around the spiritual crowd. Make sure that you've got, that, that you believe the gospel that you've trusted and you're trusting Christ and, and not your self-righteousness or our morals to make us right with God. So you can do religious ritual and have a hard, unchanged heart. We can sing great and teach well and know the Bible. And we can be mean as a snake. You can have a smooth tongue that cuts behind closed doors. You can be nice at church. And be a slave to sin. Fruit comes from a changed heart. Camouflage is on the outside. Makes you blend in. So Paul warns of these things. He warns of hypocrisy. and He, he points it out. And he, he points out this presumption instead of repentance. And he points out this hard, unchanged heart. And then he warns them, listen, if your life is marked by this, you need to know it throughout the 29 verses, he's constantly warning them of one thing. God's judgment. God's judgment. God's judgment is sure. God's judgment is going to come. Look at how, listen to how he describes God's judgment. He says in verse 2 that it, it, it's righteous and just. We know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Verse 5, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, my judgment, your judgment is tainted by sin. I get things wrong. I'm inconsistent. So are you. I can be persuaded in a way that would render an unjust verdict. So can you, but not God. God's judgment's always right. We should take heart in that. And in a day when sometimes things just aren't right and sometimes unjust things happen, that there is a just and righteous judge that sits on the throne and in the end, he's going to get it all right. He's going to make it all right. His, his, he's righteous and, and just. And every sinner will stand before God without an argument before him. No case. And his judgment will rightly fall. And those with, those with the law, as Paul says, will be judged by it. The Gentiles who didn't have it show they know right from wrong in their behavior and their conscience and God will justly judge those without the law as well, he says. It's right, it's just. God's judgment, he also says, is inescapable. Verse 3, do you, do you suppose that you're going to escape the judgment of God, he asks? What's he implying there? He's implying you are not going to escape it. See, the self-righteous Jews who had not trusted in Christ had no hope of escaping judgment, though they thought they were. Their hypocrisy was going to be judged by God. Their hard hearts would be judged by God. No one escapes God's judgment. No one. 
But one thing that is certain about our future, I'm no prophet, I'm no seer, I can't look at you and tell you your future, except for this. You will stand before Jesus one day, and you will give an account for your life, and I will too. That's the one thing about our future other than death that I can promise you. You know, sometimes we say, only two things certain, right? You got to live, die, and pay taxes, right? Those two things. Well, let me add one. Judgment. We're going to all stand before God. And the Bible reveals that about our future. And we have an inescapable judgment. And he says it's going to be according to works. He says he will render to each one in verse 6 according to his works. See, what happens in this life matters. Romans goes on to reveal that our works will not be good enough. None of us perfectly seeks to live to glorify and honor God. Your works will not justify you before God. They, they can condemn you before God. But for those who are in Christ, even our works are transformed. Not perfectly in this life. We're still marred by sin, but, but we're growing, we're maturing, we're striving to live for God's glory. We don't always get it right. But God's changed our heart, and so our lives begin to change. And before the judgment, it will be revealed that we believe what we said we believe. It'll, it'll be revealed that our faith was authentic, that the gospel was truly believed and clung to in our hearts and it, because its implications were seen in our lives. See, everybody's going to stand before God. Christians are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we're going to give an account of our life and how we stewarded it, but, but the unbeliever is going to stand before God and be judged for their sin. Be weighed and found wanting. He says that judgment is going to be impartial. Verse 11, for God shows no partiality. Whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile, whether you grew up in church or you didn't grow up in church, whether you're Baptist or Methodist or Catholic, God's judgment is impartial. God is not going to show any partiality. He's not going to let some people escape due to their upbringing, culture, ethnicity. God, God can't be bought or bribed. His judgment is not a whim. Nobody in God has their own thing going, as some people seem to think. He's not making deals. We come to God on His terms. We find forgiveness on God's terms. He's not handing out special circumstances and asterisks. He's impartial. His judgment is comprehensive in verse 16. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, even the secrets of men will be judged. There's nothing going to be uncovered, it's going to remain covered that day. There's nothing from someone's past that God doesn't know about. God has not forgotten. You cannot live it down with God. Right? Well, I'm more moral now in my 40s, in my 50s, in my 60s. I've started living right. But boy, now, if you'd have saw me when I was 22, when I was 17, listen, I'm telling you, if what happened between then and now is not gospel, faith in the gospel, you're going to give an account for 17 and 22. God has not forgotten. That's his point. It's called even the secrets of Egypt. I don't think nobody knows about that. God knew about it. And he's warning even the religious crowd. If you have not believed the gospel, if, you're not, if you don't have a savior in Christ Jesus who's taking your sin away and taking your judgment for you, taking the wrath of God for you, then you will bear that wrath. That's hard things to hear, but it's, it's, 
It's what Paul is, is pressing upon us in this text. You cannot live it down with God. Time heals a lot, but it does not sway the judge. Every act, every thought, every deed, every sinful intention, every secret, he says, will be judged. Every secret life. And believers, that's the judgment that our friends and neighbors outside of Christ stand aside and be judged for, be sentenced for eternity. That's why I'm going to remind you every week for a few more weeks. That's why we are doing Who's Your One. We're asking you to pray about the people in your sphere of influence and one person in particular that God would impress upon your heart to, to work and pray and share the gospel with and pray that God would allow you to lead them to Christ this year. Because the people that we know that do not know Christ are going to face an impartial judge one day and have their life comprehensively judged every secret. But the good news that Paul spends a lot more time on in Romans 3 towards the end of that chapter as we talked about in Romans 1.16 is the gospel. The gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. Right? He's got to reveal to us that Jew and Gentile, we, we're, we're all in need of a Savior so that we can see just how glorious the gospel, the good news really is that we can actually be saved from God's wrath. The gospel, the power of God unto salvation. We cannot be condemned for our sin. See, God takes, and in the gospel, he changes us from hypocrite to genuine, authentic, real deal believers who don't always get it right and who might from time to time do hypocritical things, but in our hearts, we authentically want to walk with and obey God and not hold people to a higher standard than we hold ourselves to. We go from presuming on God's kindness to repenting due to God's kindness. We see God's grace as an invitation to run from our sin, not wallow in it. And our hearts are softened and changed. We're actually given new hearts by God. We have hearts that truly love God and love others. That's the person that's believed the good news of Jesus. And judgment, oh, judgment. I love this quote from Scott Sauls from his book, Irresistible Faith. He says this, on the cross... Jesus took the punishment that our sins deserve, thereby moving our judgment day from the future to the past. See, I'm not worried about being condemned for my sin at the judgment because Jesus absorbs that condemnation. He absorbs that wrath for me. And if you're in Christ this morning, if you're in, by faith, you're resting in him. If you've genuinely come to Christ and cast yourself upon him and been drawn to him by his spirit, and you've rested in Christ and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection. And listen, your sin was judged in him. Your sin was judged in him. Yes, we're going to give an account before God. I believe all that. We're, we're going to, but we're not going to be judged and condemned for our sin. Because we're in Christ. And our sin was judged in him. It has been condemned and the wrath of God has been satisfied and our substitute has taken our sin away. Rather than me dying, the Lamb of God died. God's just and righteous judgment fell on Jesus so God's grace could fall on us. And so the question this morning is not, hey, are you a good person? Do you go to church? Are you religious? Do you have spiritual rituals in your life and disciplines? No, no, no. The question is, have you trusted Jesus to take your sin away? Do you know that your sin has been judged in him and his righteousness placed on you? And does your heart reveal the kind of ongoing change 
that shows the Spirit of God at work. Because the true people of God are marked by His Spirit at work with changed hearts, not necessarily because of external conformity. A believer is one who will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Let me ask you, are we killing hypocrisy in our life? Are we running from sin because of grace and not excusing sin due to it? The capable of it. Are we cooperating with the Spirit's work in our heart? Are we resisting His work? Are, are we ready to meet Jesus? And, and who's our one? Who are those in our life that God would impress upon our hearts to pray for and to share the gospel with? And It's amazing. We start praying for people and for God to save people. We begin to realize that God's placed someone in their life to share the gospel with them. And that person is you, is me. So today, maybe you need to genuinely believe the gospel for the first time. Maybe today you need to kill some hypocrisy and some sin in your life. Start cultivating a heart that loves and treasures God's word and not a heart of hypocrisy. Maybe today you need to commit to pray for and share the gospel.